Hey there, deserving listeners. Today I thought I would just read some patron emails and see what you guys have to say and respond to them. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. If you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com and clicking on the Psychology in Seattle site, I'm guessing. Maybe you just have to enter it into a search box of some sort. Go to patreon.com, Psychology in Seattle. Become a patron of the podcast. It just means that you become a monthly pledger of some amount, and you become a patron, which is our favorite sort of listener. And then you get access to our premium episodes, You probably are aware of the fact that several episodes are only available to patrons of the podcast, and so if you want access, please become a patron. More and more of you are becoming patrons every day, and that is really quite exciting. I always get a a little update, and, and then I like to send a little message to you guys, and it's fun to create a community of of like minded people and. Uh, it's it's a wonderful feeling to to be a part of that community. So please become a patron by going to patreon.com. Okay, the first email I want to read is this one. If you remember the episode titled, A Therapist Has Sex With His Client, this is the listener who wrote in about that, and she says... Just writing to let you know that my former therapist, who had sex with her, my my after they, long story short, they had a romantic interest in each other during treatment when they were client therapist, and they terminated the therapeutic relationship, began a romantic and sexual relationship. It went very badly. They broke up, and she was quite harmed by the experience. So again, she says. Just writing to let you know that my former therapist has been suspended from working in any healthcare facility owned by the state. His professional association has put him in some form of treatment focused on understanding what happened and making sure it doesn't happen again. Also, his license to practice is most likely being revoked. An investigation has found that he committed a serious patient, patient injury due to malpractice. As for me, I'm making great progress in therapy. I'm not saying what happened was in any way good, but it did kind of force me to actually deal with my issues. I now have a therapist who's superbly competent in handling all the ways in which I try to escape therapy instead of being pulled into it all. End quote. So good for you. I'm so glad that this is working out for you. I'm glad that you found another therapist. I'm pretty sure you were actually writing in asking if you should actually find another therapist or you're saying that you were not necessarily trusting to, uh, you weren't, you weren't trusting therapists to actually treat you well because your former therapist had been exploitative of you, which is totally understandable that you would be worried about that. So I'm really glad that you found a therapist who does not get pulled into it all. And frankly, that's the norm. Most therapists do not get pulled into these kinds of situations. Most therapists would never even think about engaging in a thought about having sex with a client, let alone actually doing it. So uh, I'm glad that you're healing and, and recovering from that. And 
As a part of the psychotherapeutic community, I apologize to you and everyone else out there who's been harmed by therapist, therapists. It's a hard, terrible thing, and it is n- unacceptable. It is not acceptable for these sorts of things to be happening. We're supposed to be professionals. We're trained. We have ethical guidelines. We have very specific ethical lines that we are not supposed to cross. Having sex with a client is one of those. And for those that do it, I say shame on you. You should be in the Game of Thrones sense, stripped bare and made to walk through the streets of King's Landing while someone rings a bell behind you while they slowly chant the word shame over and over again. Perhaps even the villagers should throw rotten fruit and crap at you. (laughs) Um, For you Game of Thrones people, that's uh, a reference for that. But, you know, that's obviously not what I'm actually recommending. So understand that's a joke. But it is shameful and ridiculous. As I have said in other episodes, there is a thing called online dating people. And if you're a therapist and you're finding it hard to find a romantic partner, why are you looking to your clients to fulfill that need when there is such a thing called online dating? It is ridiculous in today's day and age that you would do that. There are plenty of fish in the sea, and I think there's literally a website called Plenty of Fish in the Sea that is a dating website for you to find these other fish. So stop having sex with your clients, please. Okay, so here's another email from patron Dr. Juan, who I believe is a physician. Dr. Juan says, During my research to find guidance on certain marital issues I was dealing with, I came across many ideas. I found Bowenian theory to be very helpful for me. I found transactional analysis also interesting. In particular, the idea in transactional analysis called life scripts, or you know, life scripts. Do you have any comments on or use for this approach? So let me talk a little bit about transactional analysis. I will say that it's not something that I know that much about, but here's what I do know about it. It was developed in the 1950s by Eric Byrne. Basically, he said that verbal communication is at the center of human social relationships, which kind of sounds like a like a no-duh, but it might have been a little revolutionary at the time in the 1950s in psychology and psychoanalysis and psychotherapy to, to discuss communication. That's all we talk about today, but back in the day, it, it, that was not the emphasis. So Eric Byrne was among many people at the time that were trying to emphasize human relationships as the basis for the human experience and dysfunction and pathology. Basically, it's called transactional analysis because it analyzes communicational transactions between people. So transactional analysis or you know, communication analysis between two people. Put simply, Eric Byrne analyzed the processes of... I do something to you, and you do something back to me, and then I do something back to you, and then you do something back to me. It's a simple way of breaking down that transaction 
and trying to understand the human experience through that lens. He, he had a whole system and a whole language for analyzing this back and forth. Eric Byrne also said that each person is made up of three alter ego states, and they're similar to Freud's id, ego, and superego. The parts are parent, adult, and child. And I won't go into detail on that, but it kind of might be sort of intuitive what that was all about. Many authors and clinicians uh, since Eric Byrne have built upon his original theory. Transactional analysis became somewhat popular, and and many you know adopted it or you know furthered it as the years progressed. There's actually a super famous book that is based on that is a central book on transactional analysis called "I'm Okay, You're Okay." You've probably seen it in used bookstores or maybe your grandparents' bookshelf. It's called I'm Okay, You're Okay, and it's written by Thomas and Amy Harris. Basically, it proposes, and I think this is central to transactional analysis as well, but there are four different positions that transactions can emerge from or or create or something. Again, I don't know that much about it, but there are four basic positions that people come from. One is that the most optimal, the most healthy position is the position where you're saying, I'm okay and you're okay. I'm okay, you're okay, let me transact with you with that assumption and from that place. A, a not health, the, the, the other three of the four positions are not healthy. And they are, I'm okay, and you're not okay. So if, if I come from a position that, well, I'm okay, but you are not okay, then according to transactional analysis and Thomas and Amy Harris, who wrote the book, I'm okay, you're okay, this is not healthy, and it's something to try to change. And as therapists, we might be able to help people change that. Another unhealthy position, you might already be able to intuit the next two, is I'm not okay, but you're okay. So... Even though you're saying you're okay, it's, it's not healthy to believe that you're not okay. Because when you come from a position of that, it creates some form of dysfunction that transactional analysis asserts. And the final, the, the worst, most unhealthy position is I'm not okay and you are also not okay. This is a, a very unhealthy position to be in. I'm guessing it's when you have very low self-esteem and a lot of resentment towards other people. You could imagine that when you analyze transactions from that position, there are probably obvious issues interpersonally. So uh, what can I say about transactional analysis for patron Dr. Wong? Wan, Dr. Wan, sorry. I can say that transactional analysis is an interesting theory, it seems to me to be an easier to understand version of psychoanalysis and maybe even an early version of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's kind of hard to tell. But transactional analysis emphasizes the way we interact and how that affects us, which was somewhat before its time, as I mentioned. I'm not very aware of the theory, and it's not really in my circle. I don't know anyone in my collegial circle that uses transactional analysis or even knows anything about it. I, I remember years ago, 
a friend of mine went to a workshop on it and she was super into it and she brought the worksheets back and was trying to convince me about its usefulness. And I remember being mildly interested in it because she was uh, so interested in it. But it's it's just never really caught my eye. I'm sure that it has usefulness, as all psychotherapy theories do. And its central premises around communication and around looking at that, I, I find, you know, to be highly relevant today in therapy and also just in people's personal lives. But I think the language and the way it's packaged is not appealing to me. And I, I don't think it's very appealing to other people as well, given the fact that I don't know very many people who use it. So that's what I have to say about transactional analysis. If you out there are someone who uses it a lot, let me know what you think about it. Okay, so here's another email from patron Bethany. She wrote in a long time ago, looks like December, last December. Patron Bethany wrote in and said, I really love the start of your episode on borderline personality disorder. I believe that my father is a borderline person, and I was desperate for more information, so thanks for the episode. Well, patron Bethany, you are very welcome. I have received a lot of feedback from people regarding the Borderline Personality Disorder podcast. It is a rare condition, but is very destructive to relationships and to to everyone involved. It's it's particularly destructive to the person with the disorder, but it's also destructive to people around those people. I can't tell you how many people will come forward to me and say, after I talk about borderline or, or borderline traits, because really the, often what, what people experience is not full-blown borderline personality disorder. What, what they experience is what we call subclinical borderline traits. And it's when someone has traits of borderline personality disorder but not the full-blown disorder and they don't qualify for it. And it, you could make the argument that they actually do qualify because personality disorder criteria are really quite squishy and, and vague. But anyway, the point is is that there are a lot of people that don't have, say, the classic full-blown borderline personality disorder that have uh, a lot of issues in their life. Most notably, they feel hurt very easily and become what they believe to be justifiably very angry at people around them. And they also are quite seductive to people because, you know, like anyone else, they really need security and attachment in their life. They're very interested and empathic, and they're very interested in having having solid, secure relationships. But at the same time, they're overly sensitive to being rejected and abandoned. And when they perceive abandonment, they react with uh, extreme hurt and then extreme anger. And sometimes that can be very vindictive. Uh, there can be revenge in there. And to people around these people, it can be very concerning and crazy making. It can really make you go crazy, not 
in the clinical sense, but it, it makes you feel like you're going crazy. When you're around someone with borderline traits, significant traits, you will start to feel crazy. You'll start to question yourself. You'll start to think it's your fault. You'll start to think that you're a terrible person. And if you're isolated, particularly, then it gets even worse. And you become wholly convinced that there's something terrible about you. Because when someone around you is frequently being hurt and angry at you and criticizing you, then you start to think, well, geez, I'm a terrible person. I, I'm, a, I'm a very insensitive person and there's something wrong with me. Why can't I seem to help this person that I love feel secure in the relationship? How, how come I can't, how come all my efforts are not good enough for this person? It must be because I'm not good enough or I'm stupid or I'm a terrible person or something. And it, it, it's very distressing. Uh, it's also very distressing for children because borderline parents will be hurt by their children. For some people with mild borderline traits, they, they manage to manage it with their kids and don't let it affect their children as much as their romantic partners. But it can definitely happen with, with kids. It can happen at work. It can happen everywhere. So there were a lot of people when I made the episode about borderline that emailed me and said uh, that they appreciated it. And people with borderline emailed me as well. They would say, you described borderline very well. And the thing that I really liked about it is that you seem to have a lot of compassion for people with borderline. And I do, because in my experience, the hundred percent of the time, people with borderline traits are, uh, suffering from a traumatic history of being abandoned as children and therefore have justifiable reasons for being sensitive to that. If someone comes back from a war in Afghanistan and they're sensitive to loud noises and guns and, and violent movies, you would say, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, he's, he's sensitive to that. He should be protected from that. And when he, experiences those kinds of things, he is going to have a, a reaction that is not going to be very functional in his life. He might, you know, withdraw, he might be, get, become depressed, he might become angry, he might start drinking a lot to cope. Well, if you were significantly abandoned as a child, or emotionally neglected in some way, then you are naturally very sensitive to being abandoned and neglected in your adult life. And when somebody in your life, and, and, and people have small abandonments every, all day, every day, you know, like uh, an example is you come home from work and you're expecting your spouse to be home at 5.30 and it's, it's now 6 o'clock and your spouse isn't home yet. And now it's 6.30, and your spouse isn't home yet, and your spouse hasn't called or anything. Well, for, for that, that is a, a very slight abandonment and rejection because your spouse hasn't, hasn't contacted you and said, oh, I'm, I'm late or something. Now, for people who don't have 
trauma regarding being abandoned, they don't even notice this. They, they, they don't even notice that the person hasn't come home. They just, they, they, or they go, oh, it's six o'clock. Oh, well, you know, she's probably just finishing something at work. I'm sure everything's fine. She'll be home soon. But for people who have been traumatized in this way, similar to the veteran from Afghanistan, when this happens, it triggers this trauma and they feel all of that original relational trauma that they experienced as children and it all comes flooding back to them and they don't understand it in all likelihood. They just feel it and they don't connect it to their childhood because it doesn't make any logical sense. And so they connect it logically to their spouse and they say, you know, geez, I feel so terrible and so abandoned because my spouse did not come home on time. And therefore my spouse has done something terrible to me. And when my spouse comes home, I'm going to let her have it. I'm going to let her understand that what she did was so wrong because look how I feel. I feel so terrible. So the way that people describe borderline often is not the way I just described it. In my, I, I've never heard anyone describe borderline that way, actually, to my memory. I can't, maybe someone did, and I just don't remember, and I'm claiming that I'm an original. I, I can't be the only one that's describing it this way. But the vast majority of people who describe borderline describe it as, you know, they'll say, well, you know, borderline people, they have issues, and they're overly dramatic, and everything's about them, and they can't let things go, and they're passive-aggressive and hostile and just terrible human beings. That's the way I've heard clinicians, psychiatrists, therapists, counselors, social workers, professionals talk about people with these traits in that way, very much so. Even in clinical meetings, they'll say things along those lines. It's, it's appalling. I often will tell my supervisees this ridiculous statement. I just keep repeating it. I just keep saying people come to therapy because they have issues. They come to therapy because they have problems. And when someone with borderline comes into therapy, they bring their sensitivity to abandonment with them. They can't leave it at home. It comes with them. And when you as a therapist do something that they perceive as a slight rejection and they get hurt and they react against you, that's just part of the game, my friend. That's, that's what therapy is about. And, and that's when you know you've joined the client well enough so that the relationship is intense enough so that the client actually is starting to transfer with you. And now you actually can begin therapy. But for the vast majority, I can't say that for, for, for many clinicians that I've experienced and uh, according to the literature, when they run into this situation with people with borderline, they react quite negatively because it's very distressing. It's not easy as a therapist to deal with this, but we're professionals. We're supposed to be able to deal with it or at least seek consultation to be able to deal with it or something. But anyway, it's very distressing. And then the therapists end up targeting the client with their anger and saying, well, I, you know, because essentially the therapist is now feeling terrible because the client is attacking the therapist and the therapist says, well, it can't be my fault. It must be the, the client's fault. So this client is a terrible person. How can I get rid of this client? And, you know, 
and then they start talking crap about them. So anyway, uh, a lot of people in response to me talking about Borderline have have responded, and I, I really just want to um, advocate for people with borderline. They deserve to be treated well, and they deserve proper treatment. And the other thing is, is uh, a lot of people think that people with borderline can't be treated, but that is just empirically not true. There are plenty of examples and data to support the the reality that people with borderline traits or full-blown borderline personality disorder can be symptom-free with proper treatment. It, It does happen. Because especially when you understand the foundation of it, when you describe it the way I describe it as a sensitivity to abandonment, well, that, that seems like something therapy could help with, right? Seems like you could tackle that. But the way that it's typically described is it's a pervasive personality problem, a characterological issue that runs so deep into their personality it cannot be extricated and not be changed and it involves you know these symptoms and they will not go away a pervasive personality characterological disorder when when they're described in that way it 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 connotes a pessimism to treatment that is just not the case people it's not the case but it requires a very specialized therapist to be able to deal with it someone with a, a very specific expertise and someone with very specific consultation and supervision and support around them because even the most differentiated, most expert of therapists who treat borderline effectively will have stress from treating people with borderline because it it is uh, very um, challenging counter-transference-wise, partially because... Clients with borderline traits will often really compliment therapists because, again, and the way it's described often in a in a uh, in a negative way is, well, they're trying to they're trying to trick you into engaging with them so they can get you wrapped up in their drama. But that's ridiculous. the The reason why borderline clients will often be very complimentary to their therapist and really attach themselves to the therapist and say, man, you're such a great therapist. I really appreciate what you're doing. The reason why they do that is because they're, they're, they're so sensitive to rejection and they've been rejected so much that when they find a therapist that is even halfway compassionate, they really take to that therapist and, and they soak it up because it's, it's what they need to heal themselves. And so when therapists experience this, this, this positive transference from the client, they, it inflates the therapist's ego and they start going, wow, I'm a great therapist and look how wonderful I am. And this, this client really, really appreciates me. And, and then suddenly the client will perceive some slight abandonment by the therapist and will be very hurt because that trauma is triggered from their childhood and they lash out often and then and they lash out in very effective ways and very sudden ways and ways that traumatize uh, therapists 
Now, if the therapist has no idea what's happening, then they don't know how to interpret what's happening. But for those of us who understand borderline and treat it regularly, we say, well, of course, this is this is just part of the part of the treatment. This is just, you know, this is good. Now we have something to talk about. So uh, that is that. Let me go on to another email. Actually, no, let me just end the episode right there. Again, please become a patron of the podcast. If you like this sort of thing, please become a patron. If more and more people become patrons, I'm just going to tell you, if if we, I don't know exactly what threshold, but if we get enough, I'm going to turn this thing into a daily thing. Uh, I've experimented, I think back in January, I experimented with making it every day. I can do it. There's there's enough content, there's enough news, there's enough emails, there's, psychology is an endless, bottomless pit of topics to talk about. And I can get guests and we can do all sorts of fun stuff if enough of you become patrons. As you guys have you know, increased your patronage, I have increased the amount of episodes per week. And so if you guys keep doing it, then I'll keep doing it. So if you haven't yet become a patron, please do so. Or if you are already a patron and you want to increase your monthly pledge, that's also kind of a cool thing. We are soon having a patron Skype party for those that are pledging in the upper ranks. So if you want to become a part of that smaller community, you can increase your pledge per month. That would be nice of you. All right, again, go to patreon.com. Do it, people. Become one of us. One of us. One of us. That does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please, please take care of yourself because you definitely deserve it. (laughs) 